people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. So, first of all, hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What My Name Is Sam. Um, long-time listeners of the show will know that I am highly skeptical of books on the alt-right as a kind of a topic generally. The book we're going to be discussing today, um, and with the author, uh, who's Professor Alexandra Stern, who is a professor at the University of Michigan, um, her excellent book, Proud Boys and the White Ethnostate, um, is very much an exception to this rule. I think the book treats the alt-right seriously, both as a novel kind of political thinking, and also as a political movement whose practice as a movement, that is, what they did online and so on, influences the politics it expresses in really clear and, and um, very sharply analysed ways. So there's this dynamic between movement practice and ideology kind of broadly conceived. And the book is a really great encapsulation of like tensions between these two things and the way that the two things inform each other, um, particularly in a period um, from kind of just before the Trump presidency or kind of even stretching back. And we'll get into some of the history um, about the idea of the ethno state, which comes out you know, much, much earlier um, in the kind of early 70s, I think. Um, and then, uh, you know, we're going to bring it up to the present day as well. So I think lots of accounts don't get the dynamic right. So, um, yeah, the, the book is uh, really, really useful for people who are thinking about this stuff. And it's out now from uh, Beacon Press, I think. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes. So first question I want to ask you was, um, it's really important to think about the far right historically. It's really important to think about them as changing over time. And it's very clear that the Proud Boys, which are the to titular group the, of the book and you know you might think of other groups like patriot front um who've recently been producing a lot of very kind of dynamic and impressive propaganda but um have that kind of really you know far right uh, ideology behind them um all the way over to kind of the national socialist order which is a rebranding of a group called atom often you know to cast a hugely broad net across massively disparate groups on the far right these are very different groups also from the aryan nations uh, which is a group um that uh, it's kind of complicated to get into, but um, you know, all the National Alliance, all these kind of groups, which were essentially neo-Nazi kind of like organizations that were prominent in the 80s and 90s, or perhaps even going a bit further back as well. Um, how do we periodize these things? Or how should we be periodizing these things? What has fundamentally changed between the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the present day? Because everything, I think, fe felt in 2015 people started first talking about the old right it's felt suddenly extremely new and what so I, my question is like what divisions would you make historically between these kind of these groups in the past and, and the groups that we are kind of now facing or faced at least you know a year ago yeah well first of all thanks for having me and given that i am a historian i obviously think it's very important to historicize the far right and look at how it has morphed and changed over time and what kinds of threats it's posing today to democracy and to equality. So in terms of thinking about the more recent movement, I have been using a shorthand cast muds waves of the far right. Um, and you know, when I talk about this, not in as long as a podcast interview, but to the media, I generally just shorthanded as the fourth wave of the far right, which I think is helpful because this is distinct from the 90s, it is distinct from the 70s, it is distinct from the immediate, if we go back to the post, we'll just go back to the post-World War II period. We could go back further into kind of the early 20th century and eugenics and fascism, and maybe we'll talk about that. But so I've been using that as shorthand, and I think that there are a few things that characterize 
the far right today that are new, although many of the ideologies remain the same. They remain persistently neo-fascist, patriarchal, traditional, and so on. Uh, but what's new is, uh, first of all, the rise of the internet and social media um, and the creation of this vast, crazy metapolitical space, which is kind of like a godsend to white nationalists and others on the far right, because it allows them to do, has allowed them to do metapolitical meta work um, as they would describe it. Um, and the second, which Mudd also points out is the ways in which the far right has been normalized and has been mainstreamed. And we can see that both um, in the rise of far right actors in political parties and political representation, we see that across Europe from you know, Poland to Sweden, to the Vox party in Spain, uh, to Brazil you know, with Bolsonaro, and obviously in the United States where Trump really pulled the far right into the presidency in complicated ways that are going to be very hard to shake off in the coming years. That's gonna be a huge task. So I'm very interested in this process of mainstreaming normalization how does that happen? It, how does the far right become so normalized and naturalized that we can't even necessarily see it? And what are some of the mechanisms of that? And because of my interest in that, and one of the things that piqued my interest in that was looking at what have some have called these like alt-light actors. I don't know, that terminology is problematic, but if we think of people who, who are the gateways to radicalization, well, it's people like Jordan Peterson, and I don't know if the name of your podcast is a riff off of that in any way. Uh, it could be, but that is one of the gateways, as was Stefan Molyneux, who was booted off of YouTube, and I'm not, I, he's probably using BitChute and other, uh, you know, platforms now. So that's, so that's one thing. In terms of historicizing it, I would say that from the U.S. side, this was all brewing in the 2000s. I mean, some of these individuals who would become key figures were building their networks and finding their footing. Many of them were actually of kind of those who have produced content, more intellectual type content. They were getting their graduate degrees. So I do think of people like Greg Johnson at Countercurrents and so on. And then really, you know, the key year is 2008, at least in the US. That's the year that Paul Gottfried, he coins the term, the alternative right. It's also the year that Barack Obama is elected and in which there's a massive run on guns uh, from many, particularly whites in American society who are nervous about their second amendment rights. Um, so 2008, I think is really a turning point that a lot of people don't notice because what what that means is that these groups, some of them become more institutionalized and some of them begin to have more of a internet presence. So you think of someone like Richard Spencer and the National Policy Institute and so, and Radix Journal and the other enterprises that have all since kind of fallen to the wayside. However, they're using the internet to really network and build this kind of community of um, far right ideas. And then of course, everything is accelerated moving into Trump's election and around 2015 and 2016. And so in Europe, 
I think that, you know, also the 20, 2008 doesn't make as much sense. What makes more sense in Europe is 2015 and the refugee slash migrant crisis, which comes a little bit later. And I don't know all the ins and outs of the various far right movements in Europe. I know the basic, you know, kind of the basic kind of uh, landscape and can do some comparison. Uh, my strength is really understanding more what's going on in, in the U.S. And, and mapping that out. But I think it's really... I'll just finish up this segment by saying that I think the alt-right is, is a term that we should use with caution because it is a term that both using it gives it the credence that those who coined it wanted. Um, it also is a kind of a misnomer for something that is more dangerous and troublesome. However, I think it is useful for really capturing this particular moment in time between about 2008 and you know, the tw 2018, let's say that 10 year period before people flee from the alt-right, abandon the term and you know, kind of post Charlottesville. That's really interesting. The, you mentioned a fourth wave. That, I mean, I'm wondering if you could tell us what the previous three waves, I'm, I'm having, I can think of, two waves and then like that second wave seems to have like two parts to it but maybe i'm kind of misunderstanding the american context here can you tell us what are those four waves that you were talking about of which this is the fourth well that's a good question and i'd have to go back to the book to familiarize myself with all you know the way in which mud delineates them but you know i think the first wave is immediately after world war ii what happens with kind of neo-nazi parties where there's been denazification and de, you know, defascization or whatever the term would be. Um, and so you, those parties are, those, those actors and those groups are really kind of living in the margins. Although they are there like the American Nazi party and things like that. Then by, you know, I think the, the 70s, you're beginning to get the emergence of kind of more prominent far right actors that are reacting against immigration um, the, for, for them, for, from their perspective, the specter of increased immigration and the kind of initial stirrings of like, you know, the skinhead movement. And then by the 90s, we move into at least thinking in the US context, as you were saying, you know, kind of like Stormfront and Aryan Nation. And so that's, and I would have to go back and look at the specific examples that MUD uses, but it really goes, I think it's post-war, like, 50s, 70s, 90s, and then, you know, our, more of our contemporary moment um, without going back to the 30s, which is almost like, you know, wave zero, one could say, um, where, you know, a lot of many of these ideas are cultivated in the context of, you know, post-World War One extremism and the emergence of kind of nation-based fascism. Like yeah, or or even I guess even further back, right in the the, the first clan, right, eighteen um, seventies, yes. yeah, uh, and so on. And well, that's right, and because if you map it on then onto the U.S. more directly, it is necessarily bound up in the long history of white supremacy, which is at the crux of the founding of this country. So you can't escape it, no matter where you look. Yes. Yeah. 
Excellent. I'm, I'm I'm edified to know that that was those are the ones I was thinking of. But I was thinking of I was thinking of the um, the, the the 1970s as transitioning fairly seamlessly into the 90s as the militia movement goes through this kind of transition and chaos in 1983, right? Where it transitions to leaderless resistance and so on. You get Louis Beam and and people like this. Catherine Bellew has a excellent book called Bringing the War Home about yes. that that whole period. Um, that's great. Thank you very much. That kind of uh, that that periodization. That's really really useful. So your your but let's kind of turn more directly to your book. So it begins or it kind of um, it seemed like you begun to read about these character figures through their publications, basically through their um, quote unquote kind of think tanks or journals. Um, I think perhaps that's putting a too kind of lofty spin on it, but obviously that's the that's the spin they would want. Um, Countercurrents, Radix Journal, and um, uh, or Star publications, which I've come across much, much less than um, the other ones. Um, so, Countercurrents is, of course, Greg Johnson, and people are like around him. Radix Journal, um, uh, his most my famous figure is uh, Richard Spencer, and so on, as you mentioned, the National Policy Institute, and so on. Um, I don't know who Star publications are at all. Could you tell us who they are? Well, exactly who's behind them, I'm not sure, but it is one of these kind of like esoteric slash neo pagan slash far right white nationalist like that is basically it's how I would classify it and so it has a mixture it would like make have a nod towards some of the neo-fascist icons of the far right today like Evola and others at the same time they're publishing books that are like these series of books that are all about the greatness of Western civilization. So one of them is called the March of the Titans. And it looks like it would be, it has like four volumes and what is basically tells the story of modern civilization through the triumphs of, you know, white men um, and white people. So that would be an example of the type of book that they would sell and they take their name from, you know, kind of an ancient term around kind of old, old German uh, for kind of, you know, the rise in the new spring. So it's buying, you know, there is this kind of organic fascist idea of rebirth behind it as well. It's not the most prominent of the houses. It is the one though that did release um, a centennial edition of Madison Grant's 1916, The Passing of the Great Race. And that is why I stumbled upon it. And in fact, one of the reasons I wrote the book is, first of all, I've tracked eugenic ideas. And insofar as eugenics is entangled with far-right ideas, although it's not always entangled with far-right ideas, it can be very entangled with liberal ideas and even left ideas, but that's a separate conversation. Yes. Entangled <laughs> with far-right ideas, I've We've been tracking it, like looking at ideas of biological essentialism. What is the American Renaissance doing? What are these race realists doing? So I was tracking that. And, you know, I saw it. I became more aware of these, some of the websites I've mentioned and some of the publications around 2015. Yeah. And indeed, one of the pieces that spurred me to write the book was um, something that Spencer had published. I think it was in Radix Journal which was basically an essay on Madison Grant, which he presented as a very scholarly essay. In other words, it has footnotes, it has paragraphs, it has a thesis statement. And I was looking at it and I became very concerned because I thought, well, what if I just gave this to my students and said, this is the best article on Madison Grant. It's a scholarly article published on a blog you know, site. 
would they, you know, would they really be able to deconstruct the, this and see how problematic it is? I mean, it had the guises of everything that would be like intellectual production and intellectual arguments. And again, with a graduate degree and so on, Spencer knows how to do that. But that made me very nervous. And I felt that it was important to delve into the ideas and to be able to deconstruct the ideas. And when I wrote the book, and it was, I was writing the book, I was reading a lot of other really interesting books, but for the most part, they were focusing on people. Like there's this, especially journalists, they want to do the storytelling through how did this person become radicalized? Then what did they do? Did they become de-radicalized? You know, to kind of, and that can be very interesting to do those biographical kind of uh, examinations or their focus on the focus is on a list of organizations and kind of what I would say almost guilt by association. Like if one person is connected to this organization and they know that person, then you bundle them all together. And not that maybe, maybe we should bundle them all together. I'm not saying that there isn't kind of an associative network that we should be aware of. What I really became interested in though, are what are the ideas, what's new, what persists. So the book is meant to be an intellectual history of the ideas of the alt-right as can kind of put together during uh, that time period. And because of that, what I did was I dealt, almost everything I looked at for the book was born digital material or had become digital material. And when I set off, I set off to read everything I could that was you know, from in English and, and a little bit, I can read French in ARC published by Arctos, published by Countercurrents. Um, as well as that had appeared in places like Takis and Radix and a few other sites and to really delve into those and to pull, basically provided an anatomy of some of these ideologies that did necessitate that I take a deeper dive into social media. And that's when I started really thinking through this new literature around digital studies and particularly this idea of the effective life of digital worlds. In other words, it's not just about people. Can I say this on your show, shitposting? I oh, sure. No, I'm swe okay. swear as much as you like. I mean, I'm, oh, okay, okay. You encourage <laughs> it. <Yeah. laughs> so it's not just about people shitposting or being dark, you know, overlord, dark overlords on the internet. It's also about building community and using the internet as a place to create community and nostalgia. Um, so I became very interested in that, like what kind of emotional uh, purchase can social media have, particularly in terms of building community among you know, these groups of whites who feel besieged, who feel atomized and who feel like their community is being you know, taken from them. I think that's a, that's a really like essential angle it's one that's often kind of missed from these things so how would you how would you think about the kind of the the tension between these kind of community building structures and the ideas because we've got on the one hand we've got kind of a um you know a metapolitical kind of campaign um i guess uh, but it's referencing evola and it's referencing you know alice madison grant and um people like that and it's, it's referencing you know esoteric things but at the same time it's also just like a way of talking to your friends and I feel like there's there's often a kind of missing in accounts of the alt-right there's a missing attention between high political ideology ideas and this kind of bottom-up uh um platform dynamics based community construction right so I think I think there's often a people get one part or the other they get either the ideas or they get oh it's 4chan um and neither of these answers is quite is quite adequate so I wonder like what what 
what do you think it was about these ideas or how did they produce or, or were the ideas involved in the affect construction or were, do you think they're actually kind of separate? Well, I would say uh, yes and in both um, to your question. You know, it's all of those things. The question is how do we map it out and how do we get a handle on it? Um, so I think a good example of where we could see kind of the, these multifaceted dimensions would be just look at red ice as an enterprise. So, I mean, red ice in a way for if we wanna do an analysis of the far right, it provides a lot for us to work with. You know, you have a married couple that kind of, it's a transatlantic union between a white nationalist from the U.S., from the Pacific Northwest specifically, and you know, and a Swedish, you know, European nationalist, with both sharing fascist, neo-fascist ideas. You have them presenting ideology. Often, you know, it's performed in a very kind of TV or kind of video savvy way. And, you know, they have good for, you know, these types of enterprises, they have very good production value. But however, the ideas are there, the ethnostate idea, the great replacement idea. I mean, some of the key ideologies, what's also there is the community building. Um, and you can, one of the ways in which I have seen this is every year, they and others actually, like Millennial Woes is done one of these, I don't know if you tracked it, one of these Yule, you know, cause they got a nod to the pagan stuff. You know, these Yule, uh, you know, kind of extravaganzas where they're on, you know, have a live stream and they try to raise money too, cause it's all about monetizing this uh, for four hours and have all these people cycle in. And that's where if you're not actually someone and I'm not someone who wants to go in and take an alias and go into like Telegram or Parler and try to track these groups, it's in these long interviews and these live streams where you can actually learn a lot more about what these networks are and who is hanging out with who, who got married, who had babies and what kind of a community they're building. One of the people that they sometimes have on is this, uh, uh, this, I think his name is Jason Cohn, and um, he's part of this group that has written, like, the, the, there's one called The Great Order. Jason, that's one of the guys. There's another guy uh, who, who's written a book about white guilt. And so they have started this new journal called The White People's Quarterly and The White People's Press. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is kind of the, this is also like their whole gist is community building, building community among whites. And, you know, in a way that is not overtly neo-Nazi, that is not even, over, they say it's a more apolitical what they're doing. It's very politicized, obviously. It's all about building white identity politics in a very exclusionary way that if you poke at it at all, you'll see kind of the xenophobia and the racism as well as the sexism come right out. So I would say like that is an effective strategy on their part. So I think you can find these different dimensions that you're talking about you have, I view it as like, basically, this is a multifaceted, you know, sphere, where these parts are interconnected, but you will see different aspects of it, depending on where you look. I've also described it as a set of like overlapping Venn diagrams that sometimes connect with each other and sometimes don't, but share this, you know, what 
binds them together is basically a you know a very intense anti-democratic values um with a small d yes yeah that, 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 that which puts them in uh, one of the kind of distinctions that is often made between the radical and the extreme right that puts them more towards the the extreme end of that um uh, distinction and you mentioned also the pacific northwest and that's a uh Let's 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 talk about why that's significant. I think that's maybe opaque to quite a lot of people. Um, tell us about Wilmot Roberts Robertson. So um, Wilmot Robertson is a um, was a author was a far right author who published uh, basically as a pseudonym uh, for someone who published um, two books that were have been very well two books and also a journal all of which were very influential in basically, as we were talking about before, these kind of overlapping waves in connecting these waves and connecting these ideologies. So his first book uh, he published in 19, and I have it right here, it's called, and I'm actually looking at it right now, it was called, it's, uh, was called The Dispossessed Majority and it was published in 1972 which is pretty interesting that it was published that early. You know, when I'm thinking of it in the context of this is seven years after the, um, the, cha the change in immigration laws in the United States, when it wasn't clear to some of those who would affiliate with the far right that the changes in immigration law would really play a key role in changing the demographic makeup of the United States. It, you, could, you couldn't quite, that did not become really apparent until the 80s or the 90s. In any case, the dispossessed majority is basically, you know, the title says it all. You know, it's really about this fear of whites being dispossessed, being overrun. And, you know, it's very anti-Semitic. Jews are at the center of all of this because Jews are seen as the ultimate manipulators and, you know, very Machiavellian in their plotting and conspiracies to have kind of control and domination through divide and conquer strategies, through promoting women's liberation and, you know, the Black Power movement or whatever, what, all, all of the things that he would add into the mix. So he publishes that book in 1972. At the same time, he then starts a journal called Instauration, which some of your listeners may have seen. And, you know, it's basically, it's an anti-Semitic screed kind of month after month. Um, and, you know, I think that he's, that the, the, the kind of work that he's doing in that journal then helps lead to the publication of the Ethnostate which comes out, I think it's in 1992 that it's published. So it's about 20 years later. And the interesting thing about, there's a, many interesting things about the ethnostate. The first is that basically like that is just the title, like that is the concept, that is the anchor concept for him. And his thought is that, okay, if whites, if we go back to 1972, whites were becoming a dispossessed uh, you know, a dispossessed majority, there still was a possibility for them to be a majority right? If the immigration laws were strengthened, if certain policy changes were made, if, you know, things were able to really go back to the 1950s when whites were almost 90% of the U.S. population, et cetera, et cetera. 
But by 1992, he's lost that hope that whites can be a majority and thinks the only salvation for whites is to have their own distinct ethnostate, which is an, you know, an autarkotic, like, you know, self-sufficient space that would be racially homogenous. And one of the shifts that you also see in this is that this becomes a talking point for white nationalists today is that Oh, they don't want to like they, what they will say is we don't want to oppress or kind of a rule over other people. We don't want to live in a multiracial state like South Africa, where whites are, you know, trying to, you know, control everyone else. We're much more generous than that. We think everyone should have their own ethno state and we'll start with us, you know, because we will have the best ethno state. And if, you know, he, one of the arguments he makes in the book is that whites are so superior, well, that they will set a model. This will become like the paragon of ethno states, whatever they create. Blacks can then have an ethno state in the South. Mexicans and Latinos can go back to the ethnostate they once dreamed of as a decolonial project at Slan in the Southwest. He doesn't have much to say about Asians and he thinks Jews can either go to Israel or live in the East River of Manhattan. I mean, he literally says that those are the two options for Jews, but they cannot live in the white ethnostate because they are one, He's it's seeming with anti-Semitism. So then one of the, to, to build on this concept, and this is a kind of a dynamic that we see over and over again, he draws from ideas from the left. So he particularly draws from this idea of the bioregion, which has been developed, which has been developed by, um, you know, those in the ecology movement thinking about, you know, basically like natural, natural territorial boundaries or natural boundaries of ecosystems, you know, in the U S you would think of, you know, lines of, division, which might be like the Rocky Mountains or the Sierra Nevadas or the Ozarks. And in fact, one of the first, there's a conference held in uh, 1980, which is about bioregions. And most of it is people connected to like the fledgling Green Party and kind of lefty environmental groups. And, you know, it's folks who want to be self-sufficient, who do organic farming, all of that. And some of the first bioregion concepts are developed there, such as Ozarkia. And then of course, one that has a longer historical resonance, which is Cascadia. And now we move to the Pacific Northwest, which is seen as like one of the premier bioregions because A, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful part of the country. B, you know, there is enough soil and farming and agriculture uh, to keep people going. It also has connection to the ocean and ports for, you know, traffic for, you know, transit and, and, um, and trade if needed. And so um, he really, he, so he is most excited in terms of white people of two potential regions in the U.S. for a white ethno state. One is the Pacific Northwest and the other would be kind of the Northeast New England, which are seen as the first as the, well, the New England one, and, and there's different names that are used for that by different people. But that would basically, you know, harken back to, you know, kind of the founders of the country and to 1776 and, you know, kind of Puritans and wasps. The Pacific Northwest is seen as kind of more of a manifest destiny, 
um, you know, kind of, um, you know, reinvent yourself in the U.S. West idea. And, you know, there, as we saw in the 70s, 80s and 90s, there were a good number of far right actors who moved to the West. They might not have made it all the way to the Pacific Northwest, but they, for example, Aryan Nations, with their connections in Idaho and Wyoming and, you know, really kind of the Eastern part of Washington state and Oregon, you know, and those groups are still there. If you think of um, what is his name, the, I'm trying to remember his name. It'll come to me. Dick but, Covington. Yes. Covington, Harold Covington. Harold Covington on Dick Covington. Yes. yes. Harold well, Covington. We put together, we put it together. Uh, his name together. Yeah. So he was someone who very much, you know, in a failed attempt, but nonetheless attempt to sell this brand of kind of Cascadia and the Pacific Northwest. And I think one of the reasons, so the Pacific Northwest for all those reasons, plus the d uh, demographics were seen as very favorable by white nationalists because, you know, the population was at that time, like even in the nineties, 90% 90 white with more Asians than any other ethnic group, things have changed. All of those states have changed. All of them are becoming more diverse. And of course, Oregon was one of the few Western states to actually have, you know, kind of an anti-miscegenation and an, you know, anti-Black clause in it. So there's Oregon and Portland, Oregon, where we know the Proud Boys have been active, Patriot Prayer. I mean, that is like a state where you have the clash of these ideas from, you know, the kind of what we think of as kind of environmentally minded, you know, social left, and then the far right actors and all of those. But yeah, so the ethno state is, I think it's, it's interesting, when I was working on the book, I tried to find out what was the first use of the word ethno state. And the farthest back I could get was right after World War Two, when the term began to be used by kind of more bureaucrats who were working in the kind of post-colonial space of Africa and thinking about how are these new nations going to be formed out of these colonial, you know, these decolonized spaces where there are so many different ethnic overlaps, alliances, and tensions, as we know from the strife that unfolded in, you know, various parts of, uh, you know, kind of Western and Northern Africa over those years. But so that's where it, so it, it starts in political science I don't exactly know how Robertson, where he finds it, but once he finds it, he holds on to it tightly and, you know, he pulls all these ideas into it. He pulls the eugenic ideas of kind of, we're going to have a, a, a ethno state of superiorly bred white people. He pulls in the ideas from kind of ecology and the left about, sustainability and these romantic ideas of the bioregion. So he pulls all of this together and such that I think it has a very powerful impact. And particularly in the US case, I would say less so in Europe, although I'd be interested to hear your take on that. It really has become kind of one of the key concepts for um, white nationalists. And even for those who are, um, who would not, who they are not affiliated with white nationalist organizations. For example, I don't know if you know, in Michigan, there were a militia group had wanted to kidnap and kill the governor of my state. And so I looked into the writings and the transcripts of the FBI agent, and they kept going back to this idea, you know, we want to overthrow the governor. Um, we don't like the rules she's put down for COVID and we want to create a self-sufficient state. 
um, you know, somewhere in the Midwest with a conglomeration of kind of of our people. And these guys weren't, I don't think they first and foremost started off, you know, with any of the white supremacist organizations we would think of, but they gravitated towards that idea because that's the idea. It's one of whiteness and self-sufficiency and their own kind of twisted version of what human biodiversity means. Yes, that's extremely thorough. Thank you very much. I was, I was wondering about this, um, the kind of classification of white or the kind of the limits of whiteness, because if you think about the previous kind of generation of people who are trying to limit immigration to America, Madison Grant, Lothar Stoppard and so on, then they're trying to limit um, the immigration of people who we would unambiguously think of today as white, for example, Italians and Greeks and even Polish people, right, like who are obviously white um in like in a kind of a you know in, in a conventional sense or like the conventional sense is now i'm wondering like does um robertson have the same kind of distinctions that we would use now for describing like people as white or is there been a change since the uh, either from the early 70s or from the early 90s yeah i mean in the dispossessed majority um robertson goes through a discussion of who are the assimilable and the unassimilable whites and the ones that can be assimilated are those that you basically listed who were, you know, the nemesis of Madison Grant and Lothrop Stoddard and others who were involved in the 1924 Immigration Act where, you know, basically the, no, they didn't like the Mediterraneans, they didn't like the Alpines, but the Nordics were the ones, you know, who should keep coming into the U.S. and, you know, should kind of set the, the phenotypical and demographic, you know, mark for the rest of the country. I think one of the things that we see and that, you know, historians have shown very well is that after the passage of the 1924 act and its implementation, this dynamic emerges where, you know, Italians can become white, Southern Europeans can become white, um, East, some Eastern Europeans can become white, and even, you know, kind of sentiment against I, the Irish, which had been around a lot in the 19th century, that dissipates. So you get this, you know, whiteness itself, it's a, it's not a fixed category. It's always a process of contestation of who's in and who's out, but that group expands to include, um, you know, a broader uh, array of kind of folks, let's say of the European diaspora, the white European diaspora, at the same time that the lines are much more clearly uh, drawn between whites and Latinos, for example, whites and Mexicans, whites and Asians. And of course that is against the backdrop of, you know, a, a system of racial apartheid that is in place in the United States. Um, you know, some could argue even to this day in some way, shape or forms, although there were, you know, significant progress was made in the, you know, the, with the civil rights movement and so on. Um, so I would say, yes, that category of whiteness changed. However, there are a few constants in it. First, Jews can never be considered white. Um, they're always outside the bounds of whiteness. Occasionally, you'll find a white nationalist who thinks Jews would be okay, especially if they brought a lot of cash to the ethno state. Yeah, Jared Taylor has this position, right? Jared yeah. Taylor of American yeah. Renaissance. He believes that, and this has caused a huge rift between him and other That's white right. nationalists. Yeah. So, um, and then there's some who are a little bit softer on Asians 
or even on um, Latinos who might have more kind of Spanish heritage or, you know, let's say, you know, Spanish heritage or be kind of, of the wider or um, the wider ilk. So I would say that does change at this point. It's a really interesting question of like, what does white mean to white nationalists? Um, and, you know, one of the things that Greg Johnson says is that, you know, you know it when you see it. He said, just like this, he literally has said this. If you can, you go to the grocery store, if you can tell the difference between a cabbage and a lettuce, you, that's the same dynamic as, you know, basically having like white dar, like you will know the white person when you see them. At the same time, the advent of like recreational ancestry testing and genetic testing has created this huge boom for white nationalists who want to prove that they are white by proving their ancestry is 80% Scottish or whatever. What's really interesting is um, there's an, uh, a scholar, he's a sociologist at UCLA and he and colleagues did a study looking at Stormfront and looking particularly at the, um, the bulletin board there that's focused on ancestry testing. And what they found is that yes, many white nationalists will, you know, claim their whiteness and they will hold up their, you know, percentage of, you know, kind of European ancestry as, uh, as proof of that. But those who find that they have more Asian ancestry or more even African ancestry, they will then kind of basically say things like, well, I know culturally I'm white or I feel a hundred percent white, or I know that like that transcendently I'm white. And so I think that's really interesting. So that reflects these, um, you know, how whiteness can be understood by people who really want to possess it and claim it as a primary idea, you know, a primary identification and the slipper, it's all very slippery, um, which is another aspect of this. Yeah. The, the, I mean, in, in America, as far as I understand it, there was a, a long-standing tradition of kind of the one drop rule, right? If you heard, yeah. Um, whereas of course in South Africa, um, in the apartheid regime that was suggested and then immediately stepped away from when it was discovered that, Pretty much all white people in South Africa have um, some uh, non-white admixture. Um, you had this like, really kind of really interesting uh, tension between the New England ethnostate and the Pacific ethnostate, and I wonder if it suggests a binary that is actually very kind of interesting in terms of um, thinking about like rootedness and placeness of white people. So it's very obvious that white Europeans are not the first people to live in the Americas, very obviously. Um, and yet like one of the people who uh, Robertson, I think lists in their, in his um, list of people who are, must be kind of ejected from the white ethnostate or must be ejected from America even, uh, because they are you know, m messing up with the kind of the, are the you know, first nations people, the indigenous people of America. But I'm, I'm wondering how does, in this relationship to the land or specifically to nature, how does this figure of indigeneity play itself out in the American context? In the, in the European context, it's very obvious. You know, there are in-placed populations in you know, European countries who can just say, oh, we are the indigenous people of these populations and everyone else has to leave. In America, it seems radically unclear. And I was just thinking back, back to kind of Madison Grant and, and his uh, 1936 book, I think it is, Conquest of a Nation. Yeah. Conquest of a Continent, sorry. Where the, the marker of whiteness becomes not its indigeneity or its rootedness or its care for nature in a particular locale, but its capacity for continent-dominating um, prowess, I guess. And I, I wonder if there's a kind of a tension between the New England um, ethnostate, which seems to be like 
you know, we are whites and we are in a particular place. And the Pacific ethnostate, which of course comes after a significantly longer period of um, expansion, um, that seems to be, that, and so the, the first one is to marking out something like indigeneity discourse, but somehow in New England. And the second one is marking out um, conquest discourse or whiteness as a mode of conquest. Maybe that's just pure speculation on my part, but do you see there's a kind of tension between these you two know, different I mean, images I, I, of whiteness? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting way of framing it. I mean, the way that I would view white nationalist approaches to indigeneity or native peoples is either one of, well, it's mainly either expulsion or expected obsolescence, as well as often in conjunction with massive appropriation. So I mean that, so I'll unpack that a little bit. So in terms of, I mean, there is a kind of an understanding and assumption that since whites are the most evolved and are superior that, you know, that's kind of along the lines with the disappearing race or manifest destiny. And that's, you know, that is captured to some extent in the Pacific Northwest where there is this idea and Covington captures that in his novels, which is about, you know, kind of ragtag pioneers, white guys who are, you know, fighting for survival and are going to make this land theirs and are going to set it up for them and their families, you know, evoking the 14 words and so on. So there's that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I would say that that also is at play in New England, although it might be a little bit tamer and it buys into this idea of kind of, you know, the Mayflower and going back to kind of the, um, you know, these longstanding kind of wasp type dynasties that are evoked by some, you know, who want to have that lineage. So I'd say that's, that is there, but really it's about, you know, either ex expectation of expulsion, actual expulsion, or I would say this appropriation is, is important in a few ways. The first is that, you know, if you look at, um, you know, their romanticized ideas of some of the Indians that they know the land best, that they knew how to track, that they knew how to hunt, that they knew what to do with certain weather patterns, just like whites in an ethnostate will want to do so that they could, you know, be in environmental harmony with their bioregion and so on and so forth and be able to, you know, provide for their community. I mean, that's kind of this romantic idea that some of them have. Um, and then also this idea of kind of like the primal warrior and that this is where you get into a lot of like ideas of white masculinity, like white men are the most evolved, the most, they're both the most evolved intellectually and technologically, but also have the most kind of primordial heft, let's say, and the ability to kind of, you know, transcend and be almost godly or be spiritual. And so there's this idea of kind of this connection to the land and this male primordial connection to the land, which then is identified with, you know, Native Americans who are seen as having that as well. So it's like deflection, appropriation, um, and which is itself, it's, it's a form of erasure. These are all forms of erasure of different types. And it's, a, it, it's about repossessing, um, you know, native cultures. So I think that, um, yeah, the romanticism of, oh, and the last thing I was going to say is that 
there is a kind of analogy that's sometimes made among white nationalists where they identify with Native Americans as a disappearing race or as a dispossessed race or as the community that was, you know, dislodged by, you know, by a, a, a an unfortunate form of progress and conquest. So they, they, there's multiple uses of kind of indigeneity in the native and all of them involve erasure and, you know, disrespect for native peoples and cultures, you know, if not, they're expected annihilation. So it's quite ugly. For sure. I think, I think that last point is really, really crucial about the, I mean, maybe you're obviously the expert on this topic. So maybe you can correct me, but like my understanding is that at least some of late 19th century eugenical discourse was based around the assumed obsolescence or the assumed dying out of um, indigenous peoples. So uh, there's lots of kind of a spate of 90, late 19th century um, anthropological work that just assumes that within 25 years, all of the indigenous peoples of, say, Australia will be dead and will just be gone. And at least some of the kind of like impetus for eugenic um, uh, sculpting, I don't know how to uh, say, I, I, don't, I don't know what the verb for doing eugenics is, but some of the impulse for doing eugenics, at least is to say, um, well, we don't want to die out um, like these people. Um, I have one further question, which I think is, uh, so, and then I, you know, I've trespassed on your time uh, long enough. But thank you very much, Dean. This has been really uh, interesting and exciting conversation. You wrote the book and it kind of finished sometime, you said earlier in spring 2019, right? Yes. So since then, Christchurch shooting has happened. It seems to me like the brand of the alt-right totally dissipated, almost completely dissipated. Um, the dominance of far-right tropes on the internet has massively waned. Um, obviously for the last nine months or so, almost all of the world has been inside uh, most of the time. Um, what, what's changed? And yet the, 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 the titular group of, your, of the book, the Proud Boys, um, has undergone a sort of various kinds of transformation that been perhaps a kind of a palace coup or something of that nature has happened in between various fractions inside it. Obviously Trump, which I think was the kind of the enabling uh, accelerant, not the cause, but the accelerant of a great deal of this, um, this kind of wave. He's no longer in office or this won't be probably in a month. What, what next? What's going to happen now? Well, I'm actually very concerned about what's going to happen next, because I think that, um, you know, Trump's electoral defeat, which is still playing out as he attempts to wage something of a coup or, you know, it's not a very well-designed political machinations that he's involved in, but he does not want to leave and he either thinks he won the election or he is using that as a talking point to, you know, it doesn't really matter. But um, so I think that, you know, he has riled up millions and millions of people. Not all of those people are on the far right, but they are more likely to be associated with it now and to even be aware of groups such as we have, there are a range of groups in the US that I don't think you have in Europe, such as the Oath Keepers, you know, these are like, you know, gun toting guys who want to protect the Second Amendment and have, you know, really far right tendencies. They like the idea of a civil war and civil strife. 
they want to protect things, quote unquote, on their terms. So the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters. So there's a range of these different groups. And then there's smaller, more regional militia type groups, um, like the one I was mentioning in the context of Michigan. There's even one that dubbed itself the Wolverine Watchmen as kind of a nod from Marvel and all of that. Um, so I think there are many of these groups. I think some of them are organized. I think some of them come together quickly because they're able to use social media technologies or things like that Zello app, which is a, um, you know, uh, one of these kind of like radio, what do you call it? Uh, walkie talkie type, um, walkie talk, walkie talkie type technologies. So I'm very concerned about these groups for a few reasons. First of all, they have been galvanized by many of them by COVID and by anti by COVID public health measures. So you saw in the U.S., you know, these rallies where people with, you know, we're talking about heavy duty, you know, guns and whatnot, you know, we're often wearing camouflage, you know, who had watched the that documentary pandemic and, you know, we're kind of versed in all of that descending upon state capitals. Those people then morphed into and connected with the stop the steal, which is those who believe in electoral fraud and they keep appearing. So for example, at the rally last week or a week or two ago in DC, the stop the steal rally, one of the most, you know, kind of vocal speakers, um, it was Nick, Nicholas Fuentes, Nick Fuentes from America first. So, you know, this has given them all a platform. At the same time, if we go back to, we, were, we started off this conversation with 2008 when Barack Obama was elected. And that was the catalyst for those who might have believed in birtherism or were afraid of and, and, and horrified that there was a black president to go off and to stockpile arms and to, you know, begin to maybe move towards this idea of agreeing somewhat with white identity politics or white men who felt that their place in society was being disrupted by diversity discourse. And so if you look at Biden's cabinet, which is the most diverse cabinet we've ever had in the United States, which I think is fantastic. And, you know, it's such a relief that he won the presidency, if we can just finally get them into to office. You know, I know there's critiques of him from AOC and others, but whatever, um, you know, given the alternative, you know, it, it would have been a truly terrifying situation, I feel, if Trump had actually won the election. And, you know, there's, he still had 71 million people that voted for him. But so I see this as, you know, with Biden will be a catalyst for some of these groups to continue to organize, to um, to participate, you know, in the opposition, to be the dissident right that the dissident right has always hoped existed. And, you know, I much has been made of the fact that, you know, some of these people have been deplatformed. So, you know, they've been thrown off of Twitter. They've been thrown off of YouTube. But that doesn't mean they've gone away. Um, and, you know, they there are other platforms, you know, from Parler to BitChute to so on that they can use. And the other thing is that I would say that you can see ways in which this far right ideas have been more and more mainstreamed and it is acceptable to use them in regular political discourse. So even though these people, and I think of one candidate in particular who ran for Senate and failed in the Northeast, 
you know, she didn't win her election, but she continues to pipe away on, you know, to spout on Twitter about everything that is a white nationalist talking point about the great replacement, about the problems with diversity, about this, that, and the other. So I'm con very concerned about where we're going. I mean, this is not going away. Um, in fact, being in the oppositional stance in a way is, can be very productive for these types of groups. It can allow them to make more connections where those connections ideologically perhaps did not exist before. And I think that it's going to be, uh, you know, it's even as we come out of the pandemic too, which is another thing, once people are actually out and about and interacting more socially, what is the world going to look like? How are these groups going to capitalize on that? Um, and so I am concerned about what things are going to, I think it's going to be really rocky um, in the U.S. For, for the next four years and maybe beyond. Fantastic. Yes, thank you. I think a couple of the other things I think are, are kind of worth mentioning is that uh, Covington, who we mentioned earlier, Harold Covington, who wrote The Brigade, which is like kind of a, a leafier version of the Turner Diaries, if you will, um, he... Um, he died in 2018, I think, um, sometime yeah around then, and he was immediately kind of replaced as the leader of uh, a breakaway um, network by Norman Spear, who was uh, the kind of a synonymous leader of the group called the Base. Um, and the Base, as far as I understand it, was an attempt to kind of like launch a um, kind of guerrilla war in order to, or thought of itself as a kind of, I mean, the, the model they were using was the IRA. They thought to themselves as the militant wing of a separatist organization, which would take over the, uh, the Northwest. At least that's how Norman Spear spoke about it in at least one interview. Um, so I think there's also this kind of process by which like, as you de-platform people, they also like harden and harden and harden and harden. I think, yeah, there's so much more uh, to ask about with the relationship between you know, the militia movements and the three percenters and Oath Keepers and so on, um, and even QAnon. Right, which gives a kind of a shared um, conspiratorial language to a, a great number of these groups. Not all of them, but you know, a great deal of these groups seem to be at least flirting with the kind of the hugely amorphous um, meme-plex uh, of uh, QAnon. But I will ask you no more questions. That was fantastic. Thank you very much, um, Professor Alexandra Sturm. Um, go and buy Proud Boys and the White Ethno State Tatna from Beacon Press. Really, really highly recommended. And thank you very much. Thank you. I'm going to make those pompous academics regret kicking out such a genius. Deciding to build my lab and do my research. The Time Talks Podcast. Have you ever stared at a 500-page book and wish you could just talk to the author about their ideas instead? If so, the Time Talks Podcast, part of the Channel Zero Network, is for you. Where we discuss history, politics, music, and art with an anti-authoritarian and anarchist perspective. The Time Talks Podcast. What's this light? I feel different. The Time Talks Podcast. Twelve rules. <laughs> right,